Welcome back to Interview with a PediPod. This is Carter Clement from Children's Hospital of New Orleans, and today we'll bring you part two of a recent conversation between your host, Nick Fletcher from Emory, and our guest, Dr. Jonathan Schinnecker from Vanderbilt. This part of their conversation will cover a slew of topics, including how Dr. Schinnecker juggles such a busy work and home life, why basic science research is so important to our clinical progress, and some of his tidbits on how he puts together his well-known and really borderline artistic PowerPoint presentations to boil down some complex topics for the rest of us. So with no further ado, here is your host, Nick Fletcher and Dr. Schenecker. Hello again. This is Nick Fletcher here today with my good friend, John Schenecker. So I'm curious now, I mean, you're, you've obviously established yourself in your career and you've got a lot of balls in the air. I mean, your kids are great. Your family's wonderful, but you've got a lab that we'll get into a little bit later. You've got a very, very busy practice. You do a lot of writing. Your talks seemingly take 400 hours per talk to, <laughs> to prepare. How the hell do you do all that, John? Yeah, this goes back to growing up with Perry is that, you know, what I try to do is just make absolutely certain that the things that I select to do are things that I absolutely love. And just that part that of when you switch over to doing something that you're intrinsically motivated about, it's easy to lose time. It's easy for sitting down and getting focused and, you know, focusing in on a PowerPoint presentation that you spend five hours on and don't even realize that you spent five minutes. And, you know, the part in terms of my career Vanderbilt has been absolutely unbelievable for allowing me to build this. Down to the physical space, you know, the beautiful thing of the Children's Hospital is it's right next to the research building where my lab is. So I don't complain that much about turnover time. You know, if I have a half hour to go over and catch up with everybody in the lab, I, I take it. Whereas a lot of the other places I looked, you know, they were four or five miles apart and that would never happen. But then down to the aspect of what in particular Herb Schwartz, has, as you know very well, and then Greg Mencio, you know, they had such faith in who I was and that I wasn't going to waste their time that they pretty much set me up here along with the Department of Pharmacology, Heidi Hamm, letting me design it. And it's worked out so well. And the biggest thing I realized right from the very beginning of all of this is there's no way I could do this as an individual sport. And I have been unbelievably lucky with, in particular, the people that I have had in that lab, just having people who love it. They are, respect me in terms of my time as a clinician, as well as my time as going to meetings, et cetera. And together, the synergy that we have is just infectious. It's really fun how many people will come through that lab. And if you have any integrity and curiosity, you're going to want to be around because everybody dives so deep into what they do and they know of what it's translating to. And in particular, right now, I have a postdoc named Stephanie Moore, who is a graduate student with me, who has really taken up the idea of education and transforming education and is working both in pharmacology as well in the medical school and with all of our residents is coming up with the best ways that we learn. And so she really takes all the medical students under the wing, her wing when they come in and really fosters them into learning how to approach both education and research. And then Matthew Vernay, who's a research assistant professor who's in the lab and you know, really diving deep into the science and putting the time into the nitty-gritty details of every single assay, which at this point, I Nick, I wouldn't have the time to do that. And you know what happens is, is that we're at a point right now for all of us in our careers that 
each of our success is somebody else's success. So anything, if I go off and give a really good talk on supercondylars, what's really neat is Matt, who's our you know deep, deep basic science guy, understands that that's really good for him, the stuff that he's doing on you know the progenitor cells and the periosteum. And it just makes it so that all of our efforts cross-pollinate in a way that each of us see it as being a benefit to our careers in the science that we're doing. And that was the part that I had an idea that Vanderbilt was going to allow me to do that, but it's allowed me to do it in a way that I never thought possible. And, you know, the time aspect in terms of the clinical side of it is that Greg Mencio has just been the best thing in the world. I mean, he's never once shown up in my office and said, you know, you need to put the pipette down and do more cases or vice versa, you know, say, if you want more cases, you can get them. And he's really just left that up to me. And that makes it so that I have not felt most of my career at Vanderbilt that I'm driven by extrinsic motivation, is that I am constantly being hounded by how many RBUs have you done? You need to do this, you need to do that. And it comes up now and then, but the thing is, is for the most part, in terms of aiming for that ideal gas law, that we can do as many cases as we want and do as much research as we want at the same time and that they don't get in the way of each other, it's been remarkable. And that aspect of it is why it always appears that I have more time is that I have a really, really, really good team that all of us are moving towards the same goal. And it just makes it so that, you know, one and one becomes three. So yeah, that's the it's pretty it's pretty amazing. And you and I have talked about this a lot. I remember when, you know, when you first came out of fellowship and I remember we were talking about publications and you were saying that there was some question because the lab hadn't put out a lot of papers and you're like, but you have no idea the volume of things. And I, I've always been impressed with the sort of overarching plan that the lab has in terms of asking questions and making sure that you're asking the right questions and you've got the right processes in place to study them. And I'm sort of curious how you've built that amongst yeah. such a diverse group of people who come through. Like you said, I mean, I feel like every medical student that we've ever interviewed from Vanderbilt here at Emory has worked with you. So you've got a, a big, you know, revolving door of people who come through and yet they all do great things. And yet the lab continues to put out not just volume of research, but like really high quality stuff, like you said, DOD and NIH level stuff. Yeah. So, you know, the most important pieces of advice I had when I was doing my PhD was one is uh, never, ever study homeostasis, always study hemostasis. <laughs> and at first, it, when the guy told me that, I'm just like, man, that's kind of dorky and that doesn't really make sense to me. And now when I look at it, you know, and this came from when Urbanic told me uh, coagulation is that you're in biology and in science and in actuality doing a surgical procedure. The most important thing is the question. It's not your hypothesis, it's the question you're going after. You can have a great hypothesis about a question that is meaningless. And what these guys really instilled in me is, is to make sure that with every biological system or any surgery that we're doing is, is to take a step way back, break it down into its elements, and look for the critical steps. And make sure that you're studying the critical steps and what is great about that is, is it gives you the best research questions, but it also is the fundamental component to education. If you think about when you teach somebody how to do a supercondylar, is one of the most important things is to understand the reduction. And you can't understand the reduction of a supercondylar without understanding periosteum. And so what happens is, is in terms of my teaching, 
is, is I always start off with the residents about explaining that if you look at a super condo, they realize that the most important thing that you need to know is what you can't see on the x-ray. And until you understand that, and until you understand how to work with periosteum on the reduction, you're not going to be good at these. And with the same thing, when it comes to our biological things that we ask is, is we try to break every biological system down to what are the most important questions in the in orthopedics and then come up with hypotheses that go after this. And the reason why that works for us in our lab is that the medical students and residents and grad students come through hungry to do something that matters. Well, if you spend a ton of time focused in on what matters and what the critical steps are, it's easy for them to come in and realize that if I spend this year in the Schoenecker lab learning about bone biology, periosteum, and then the acute phase response, I just covered almost the entire orthopedic basic science curriculum. And that's how, what in particular, Stephanie and I have been doing in terms of the curriculum we put the students through is we require that they do three projects. And one of them's focused on acute phase response. One of them's focused on bone biology. And then the third project is focused on education, be it, you know, working on how to teach, you know, to a medical student, to a resident, et cetera. And the thing that we have really instilled in them, which is what I learned going through Vanderbilt doing research and not getting many publications about, is that if you think that the publication is the outcome you're looking for in research or in clinical research and basic science of clinical, you're going to fail. You know, the thing is, is that the process of going through developing the question and going and having peer review of that question, traveling to meetings and let people beat it up and really keep asking yourself, is this even a good question, makes it so that you're studying everything to the point that you become an expert in it. And for our medical students, they'll go through and they'll know every aspect of the acute phase response, even though their one publication that they have on it is on like, you know, one one billionth of it. But by learning the entire thing, they are such a better researcher and such a better doctor. And that's how we've really tried to set all of this up and why a lot of the medical students come through is that they know that they're getting something out of it more than just a paper. How do you, along those lines, I mean, you've got a lot of people who are coming through and I bet a lot of them, you know, don't come in with PhDs. How are you counseling the students who really sort of get into this and want to incorporate basic science into their life when they become residents, when they get into practice, but they don't have a background in bench research other than maybe, you know, some time in your lab or maybe a little bit of time in undergrad? Yeah. You know, that's something that I've come down to explaining to them. It's the when I was on a rotation in hematology at Duke in my fourth year, it's just that I uh, went with this hematologist and he went to a big conference explaining things about a patient and walked out of there and everybody was in all of them. And he looks at me and he says, Shenaker, you know the difference between me and all of them? And I said, what's that? And he said, 2,000 vocabulary words. <laughs> and the thing is, is that after that, we talked about it. His comment to me was, is just that as you go through this, you know, realize, that one of the most important things to make it so you can interact with other people outside of the field that you're comfortable with is initially the vocabulary. And where he went with that after that was also the tools. And so the thing to understand about where we are in research right now is is that you have to understand clinical research, in particular evidence-based medicine research, and basic science research to really be good at They are not completely dichotomous. They have to be together. And the reason why is that all you can really do with evidence-based medicine research, and I know this is going to provoke a couple of people to be angry with me for saying this, but 
are just associations. We are never going to actually prove anything with evidence-based medicine research in terms of mechanism. We can prove that A associates with B and B associates with C and things like that, but you can't show that A goes to C through B. The main reason being is this is that we're never going to be able to control all the variables in human research like we can in basic science. Mm -hmm. And so the thing is, is that you have to really get into the language of understanding clinical research, evidence-based medicine research, and the terminology and how it works if you are a basic scientist. And if you are in clinical research, you need to understand the vocabulary and all the tools available to do basic science to know when you could be much more efficient as a scientist. So there are times where I see people who continue to try to prove mechanism with evidence-based medicine research, when if they just knew that there was a specific genetic technology that they could have done and used on an animal model, and they could have proved in a year instead of spending 20 years of their career to prove it, they're incredibly inefficient. Yeah. And so that's part of this that I think almost everybody needs to understand is, is that when they come through my lab, what I explain to them is exactly that, is, is that our acute phase response research I have them do is much more clinical. And what I always tell them at the end is, is that your conclusions in this paper were all supposition. You found some associations and you say, I think this is happening because of that. Well, the only way to really go prove that then is, is to dive into the basic science models that we've created that, quote, phenocopy the human condition. And we make it all these mice are clones. We can knock out the one gene. We can block the one gene, the one protein that we thought from the associations is causing this. And then we can cure it. And if you continue to study this in, in clinical research, you pull your hair out. But the thing is, is that it, the most important part of it to understand is, is you don't come up with a good question to go do something in the modeling and basic science unless you have that clinical research first. And so that's the part of this that when people come through the lab where I explain to them about diving into if they want to do a PhD in basic science, et cetera, is, is that I just look at them and say, you know, do you want to actually have a lab? If you really want to have your own lab and actually dive into these pathways, then you need a PhD. But if you want to do really good translational research and you're going to be mostly clinically based in terms of what you do, you should spend time in a basic science lab diving deep so that you learn those 2000 vocabulary words because it's going to make you a killer clinical scientist because it allows you to know when you should switch gears and go to a basic science model to answer questions that you could never answer clinically. Yeah, absolutely. I, I want to get into something else that we touched on a little bit earlier, but you and I talk about a lot, which is education. And especially this venture that you sort of alluded to in the world virtual reality and, and things like that. You know, when you look at us, we're, you know, 10 years roughly out of practice or out of our residency. How do you think we're educating in the future? How does technology fit into this? When we're traveling to iPods together in 10 years, we may still be at Universal Studios, but we may be doing an entirely <laughs> different, taking an entirely different approach to education. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so, you know, I like to say that the inflection point that we're at in education in task mastery, meaning anything that, again, requires both cognitive learning and psychomotor learning, is similar to the inflection point no out of the time of John Hunter when, you know, for one millennia, it was taboo to dissect the human body. And imagine in the 1700s, all of a sudden, 
it's now accepted that you can dissect the human body. And if you look back, the explosion of anatomy, that's when modern surgery started. I mean, Hunter's Canal came because John Hunter figured out that, you know, stagecoach drivers were dying from popliteal aneurysms and they could do surgery without anesthesia, doing serial ligation to force an anastomosis and they wouldn't die. And that time of body snatchers, et cetera, led to such an explosion in surgical training that modern surgery was born. And then after that, with the advent of anesthesia, now all of a sudden we can really explode and learn exactly how to dissect the human body while it's still alive. I mean, it really was remarkable. The Where we are right now is, if you think about it, we haven't had an evolution in medical education truly and honestly since the beginning of the 20th century. You know, we still think we're supposed to be a combination of didactic and cadaveric dissection. And then exactly what we talked about at the beginning of the podcast, and that was chance, is, is that that mentorship aspect of it is, is that you sure hope in your residency is, is that you get enough chances to practice that surgery in a way that you learn it right. And so what's happening now is more, I think everybody jumps to virtual reality. I think that that's truly and honestly not really where all of this is. I think that the amount of digital media that represents the human form in a way that comes close to substituting for some of the things that we train in the operating room is at a point where it's cheap enough to build that the assets are available to put together good programs that we're going to be able to sit or, you know, underwear in our basement and be able to walk through surgeries that would have required being on call for a year and practice. Whether or not they completely make it so that you're an expert at it, that doesn't matter nearly as much as you get to walk through all the steps of them and therefore take the deliberate practice of learning the steps on that human body out so that when you walk in the operating room, it's not like you just sat down and read a paper, which really doesn't translate well into a deliberate practice of a psychomotor component, you can actually practice these things. And I think that's where this explosion is going to really transform how we educate. So it's a bunch of great points in there. You know, it's interesting that even in the time that you and I have gone through our education, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say up until you know 10 years into practice, when we started, we were limited in techniques predominantly to old journal articles if they had a surgical techniques. Although I'll be honest, the prevalence of surgical techniques published in the medical literature when I was a medical student was far fewer than it is now. And so we were limited to textbooks and sometimes the textbooks were 15 years out of date. And Currently, when I ask the residents to go read about something, if I ask the fellows to go read about something, the first thing they do is pull up Posna Academy to figure out if it's on there. The second thing they do is look at View Medi. They might look at Ortho Bullets, and God forbid they ever open a textbook. And, right. and the question that I have is: with in a world like in a multimedia world, in a world where you can watch somebody operating and you can practice the conceptual component of surgery, although not you know we've got the ability now to, to nail a tibia in virtual reality, but you don't make you don't do the reduction. How close can we get, especially when we realize some of the limitations that work hours that, like you were uh, alluding to earlier, RVU pressures put on surgeons to allow our trainees to practice? How close can we get with some of these other uh, forms of media? 
incredibly close. You know, the thing is, is that what is essential to answer that question is, is exactly what we talked before about breaking it down to the critical points, is that there's an aspect about learning surgery that is important to break it down to the steps of a case and make it so that we don't have a problem of learning both the cognitive aspect of the case and the psychomotor at the exact same time. And to become an expert, I mean, the, the, our favorite quote of this always is going to Bull Durham, you know, get out of your head crash, yeah. you know, when you're trying to hit a baseball, is that it's amazing watching residents proceed through the process of learning surgeries is that when they don't even know the name of the instruments and they don't know the steps of a case, they look awful. You know, they look like they are clueless in terms of how they're holding a drill, et cetera. And it's amazing when you really break that down to them and explain to them, this is that one of the first aspects, like we just talked about, the vocabulary is understand the vocabulary of the operating room, understand the steps of the case, the critical parts of it, the critical anatomy, et cetera, is, is that I think that that's where we fail in a lot of our technique guides, et cetera. They just... Right now, if you pick up a technique guide that goes straight to exactly what you said about the tibial nail, it goes straight to just the steps of how to put the nail in. But the thing is, is that there were so many more steps before that that are much better represented in a digital format, a 3D modeling, if you will, than in text. And that's where I think that the revolution of all of this is going to be, is, is that the ability of pulling up on your phone a anatomy representation of what you're looking at that actually represents what you're going to do in that operating room. You know, right now it's one size fit all. Almost all the anatomy apps that you see are really cool. They're way better than what you and I had going up, but they're still not tailored to one specific case. And I think that that's where the transformation is really going to come. This is that you're going to have in your hand a 3D representation of the case that you're going to do with the critical steps laid out. And again, that's the part that I'm saying in terms of what we're experiencing here at Vanderbilt looking through this is that doesn't need to be in VR, if that makes sense. Right, right, right. So I want to follow that a little bit further. So I think one of the things, and you and I have talked about this quite a bit, that's a challenge with VR, with any of the things that you're looking at, is the ability, you know, if you look at an anatomic model and you look at the approach, let's say for a femoral nail, right? So in the limitations in our system right now, we can take anatomic models, we can take, you know, and you've done quite a bit of work in this, and look at the dissection. So maybe maybe a um, femoral nail wouldn't be ideal because it's mostly done percutaneously. But for example, a blade plate, right? So you're putting in your blade plate sure. and you can model it out so that you make your lateral approach and you incise the IT band, you lift up your vastus, and then you get to the point where you put in something that is proprietary, right? There's not right. a generic blade plate. There's not a generic proximal lock plate. How do you marry those two? How do we yeah. marry those two in the future? Yeah. So that gets into the, the even broader concept is as to who's paying for it. Because that's, you know, there's a Blake Farmer, who if you have a chance to go and listen to him, he's one of the NPR guys who's really taken on the role of industry in the operating room. He and I've had a chance to talk about this at length, is that right now the main people who are really willing to pay for education, if you think about it, are companies. Yeah. Right. And usually that is industry support for their project, which means that there's a inherent financial incentive bias towards education of one's product. 
And what you're bringing up right there is what's happened in terms of the conflict of interest part, where we need, now need to declare every single thing that we do, is, is that in actuality, the legislation on this, as well as the way that we're setting up a lot of our education, trying to make it so it's non-biased, is not truly representative of what happens in our practice. When I go and do exactly what you just did and start designing a module for learning how to do a blade plate, you have to pick a device. At some point, our operating room has to switch over to us using something that is making a company money. You have to. And so that's the part of this that I think that we really need to work out first in terms of how we're doing this within POSNA, but also a bigger part of just in medicine is how do we get to a point that we have an agreement that in order for all of us to be safe and technically putting in the devices that we're putting in is just that it's actually okay to educate how to put those devices in. Right. You know, nobody's going to go out and put in a generic device. Right. I mean, a lot of the nuances of the things, for example, that we teach at IPOS is when we do our master's techniques, for example, or any other place that we're teaching it, we have to have these industry-sponsored sessions to actually get into the nuances of how you actually use it. We don't allow those to be continuing medical education when in actuality, a lot of complications in patients, I think we all would agree, can come from not completely understanding how a device works. And that's the part of this that I think that we as a society have to, you know, the pendulum swung way over to the side of trying to make it so that we have no conflict whatsoever, no marriage of industry and education, or at least making it so that, you know, we don't have the incentive of education being driven by industry, which I understand. I understand where Blake Farmer's going with that. But the thing is, is that it's an ideal gas law, is, is that until we get to the point that hospitals hire a rep who supports everybody's product, you know, and so they're agnostic to which product is put in. They don't really care until we get to a thing where we can go to our conferences and everybody's instruments are out for us to learn and there's not that drive. And I can't imagine a world like that. And so that's the part of this that I think we really have to continue these conversations about what we're doing in terms of education, because industry has jumped at it. I mean, also VR is a very good example of this. This is that, you know, the, the tibial nail that you're referring to is, is that obviously their funding for that is coming from industry. Um, it would be quite difficult for anybody who's trying to develop education right now not to be paid to do it because it's so expensive. And the best place to go get that money is industry. And that's where Blake Farmers really made a point of this, is just that this is not right. And if anything, if there was a way that we could get it so like POSNA paid for it, it would be fantastic. But that means that's coming out of all of our pockets. And it's something that we're going to have to figure out down the road with a revolution that's happening in education is where is the money going to come to actually make it so that we produce the best educational material with or without industry support? Well, I understand that. And I think that if pediatric orthopedics, I think is a little bit unique because I still would say there's a large portion of it that, and this is on the surgical side even, that doesn't require any industry 
you know, implants or whatnot. So, you know, you can do a supracondylar pinning, which is obviously the most common thing that we probably all do. And that involves a diamond pin that, you know, I don't know who makes our diamond pins, but I, I certainly don't think there's a major industry portion or a component to that. You can do hamstring lengthenings or adductor lengthenings or, you know, Achilles lengthenings or whatnot. There's nothing that you're implanting. And I think that's still a little bit unique in orthopedics, but there is always going to be some industry-based implant that you're implanting. And if we try to take it down to the point where it's generic, that won't fit with what we're actually seeing in practice. And I think that's one of the biggest dichotomies that we're going to struggle with here. And I think I could not agree with you more. Pedicle screws are the perfect example because pedicle screws, they look the same, but they're not the same. And there are differences in how you put them in. And when you're looking at it from a training standpoint, there are differences in how the driver works or how, you know, when you're putting it on, whether or not there's a power attachment, how the threads look, you know, there's a lot of aspects to it that you can't just turn into a generic thing and assume that people are going to make, be able to make the jump to the next step. uh, And that's where the industry side of it works. You know, the other aspect of this to remember is, is that part we talked at the very beginning is, is who pays for education, who pays to educate. And, you know, a lot of that actually comes down to in today's day and age, the, we like to always joke, you know, I don't know what, but the question is at hospital but I know what the answer is, it's money. And, you know, the thing is, is that if you really break that down, the biggest driver of education other than just education for itself is risk management. If you think about it, I mean, how fast if something happens at Emory that there's a something that happens to a patient that all of a sudden the hospital is making sure everybody's taking an educational module that they just paid a ton of money for. Right. And the thing is, is when it comes down to risk management, it's a hot potato, Right. So, you know, the industry, of course, sees their educational aspect of being a promotion for selling their product, but they also are holding the hot potato very close in that if surgeons don't put their device in right, the risk management aspect for them is huge. You know, if they have, if their device is used improperly and it ends up making it so that they get an entire product line removed, they're in trouble. And you see that a lot in the arthroplasty field. And the thing is, is that the aspect of this that I think the one way that this can shift, and it is starting to happen at some of the hospitals, is that if they view education as being a direct aspect of risk management, they'll put money into it. And I think that's where all of us, when we sit back and look at this in terms of quality improvement projects, et cetera, they're essentially risk management. And that's the aspect that I think that we can maybe make it so that there is there are more players in terms of who's investing into the education of these techniques. Um, in particular, the ones like you're talking about, like the you know supercondylar or the hamstring lengthening, you know those are ones that, in my experience over the last three years of really diving in to how to really bring innovation to up to speed with what we're doing, it's easier for me to go to right now a device company and talk to them about putting funding forward. It's harder for me to go to Vanderbilt right and ask them. And as I've been going through it, what I've been picking up on is exactly that, is is that Vanderbilt's more than willing to put forward resources as long as I can explain to them exactly how it's going to be a quality improvement for their patients, et cetera. And that's the part of this that I think that as we go through is is it's really going to break down to that, is is that the person who's going to pay for all the education is realistically going to be the one that sees the margin in terms of risk management and quality improvement. That's a great point. 
All right, a couple more things, because I know that I've kept you longer than I promised, but I would be remiss if I didn't talk about your talks. Um, <laughs> I think, I mean, we've known each other long enough. I've probably seen a hundred of your talks, and I would challenge anybody who's listening to find somebody who creates a more thorough and well-thought-out talk. And I remember Jack Flynn, after you gave a talk on the physis, asking for a moment of silence at IPOS, stating that nobody will ever hear a more thorough and complete talk about the physis, which I would echo. And so people are always like, how does he prepare talks. So I've got you on the phone. How do you go about preparing your talks? Do you have an outline? What are your goals? Sort of how, how do you go through it? And ballpark, how long does it take? <laughs> um, so it takes years. That's definitely the case. The biggest thing about it for me, again, it goes back to the thing that I said, what intrinsically motivates me is, is that concept of um, being both innovative as well as in, like Steven Spielberg is I love education. I love talking about things that I'm very excited about, know that there's a room full of people who are also very excited about. The aspect about making a good talk is exactly what I talked about at the beginning in terms of reducing things down to its critical points. You know, the hardest thing about any talk when it comes up are two things. What's the topic and what's the audience? And so the very first thing I do when I'm assigned to talk, first of all, I'm at the point now where if people assign me talks that I'm not interested in, or they ask me to give a talk that I'm not an expert in, I say no. The worst talks I've ever given are ones that I'm not interested in or I'm not an expert in. And the, so that's where I start off is, is that I really go through asking, what is the topic? And then I sit down on a sketch pad and I literally diagram or architect out that topic. And that's when I read a ton. I pull up papers. I look for good review articles. I look for other talks people have given. I find book chapters. And I go through and try to break it down into the critical steps that I feel like if you were to learn these critical points, then you're going to understand the field. After that, I do a lot of time trying to figure out who the audience is. And I have to tell you, is, is that is a trick that it, I think everybody should do, but you're going to find is very hard. What's nice about giving a talk at IPOS, for example, is that the majority of the people who are there are there with the intent of learning. And they, for the most part, know the language. And so you don't have to do a ton of introduction in terms of the language of what you're going to get into, which makes it so that that five-minute talk is very efficient because you can skip over giving you know, those definitions. But once you have that down, then it's the part of, and this is the hardest part, and there's been nobody better at this teaching me how to do this than Don Bay, is that you have to find a way to grab everybody's interest. And that is really hard in today's media age of everybody having a phone in their hand, an instant distraction device. And so what Don taught me about that was making absolutely certain that you find a way to get everybody on the same page at the beginning of the talk as, as to what the problem is, is that you're taking on. And if you know your audience and you present that problem at the very beginning and show that at the beginning, most people will look up and say, yeah, I don't like that problem. I don't want that to happen. And then you get to spend some time giving some what might be seemingly boring background that leads you to the point to figure out how to take that problem on. And so it's really just like how Steven Spielberg makes his movies is just that he starts off with something sensational at the beginning that is absolutely awful, but then works back through backstory up to it. Just think about what Jaws is. Right. It starts off with a shark attack. And then the rest of the time, if you watched 15 minutes of Jaws without knowing that there's a shark attack at the beginning, you would fall asleep. Right. 
But just seeing that shark attack at the beginning makes you want to watch every second, just anticipating that detail. And that's what Don really helped me out of what is going through and making sure that at the beginning, everybody's heard Don Bay get up and say, I think we would all agree that the type 3 posterior lateral supercondylar is bad because of the vascular problems that may happen. And then he always shows a white hand and that at Boston Children's, they've had to, you know, amputate some hands because of it. When he does that, there's not anybody in the room who's not going to want to listen to any little pearl that Don might have to make it so that doesn't happen. And so in terms of taking all those critical points, I think that's the most important thing to do is at the very beginning, know your topic, really diagram it out in terms of how you get from you know, the beginning to the end, and then ask yourself, what are the biggest problems that can happen with this? And you use that at the beginning to make sure that everybody's on the same page as to what we're doing. And then it's to go through a way of pacing it so that you don't lose people. And that is where people love to tease me that my, you know, five-minute talks are 500 slides. The reason why they are is that there's so many aspects about brain rules is that nobody will listen to a word you say until they have acknowledged a change that has happened on a slide. So I can tell you right now, everybody's been guilty of it, of saying, I know this is a busy slide, but (laughs) the critical part is right here. Well, understand that if you put up a slide that has a ton of words Everybody's going to try to read all those words before they listen to a word you say. And if it takes them even two seconds to read those words, when they switch back over to listening to you, they're lost. They have no idea what you're talking about. And so then what they're going to do is pick up their cell phone and not pay attention anymore. And so the goal of slides, the way that we do them now, is is to make it so that everybody can recognize what changes on the slide within a millisecond. And then they will listen to you. But then the key is, is that if you talk longer than 10 seconds, they're going to be sick of listening to you. And so you need to then have something else change. And so they've done tons of studies on this, on how to keep people's attention. And this is the main way that they suggest it. You process a picture 40,000 times faster than you do a word. So using as few words as possible is essential. You process a video 40,000 times faster than you do a picture. So the goal is to try to make it so that you can do your entire presentation essentially as a you know stop-action movie. And it's the best way to make it so that people continue to pay attention throughout the entire talk. Now, you say all that stuff about me doing wellness. I can tell you is that most of my talks actually are not that great, according to the rules that I just said. Is that, you know, the time that it takes to make these really, really good is years. And so when I'm done with a talk, usually what I do is just sit down and write down all the areas of the talk that I can tell I lost the audience's interest. And then I try to find a way to go back and revise that section, either with better drawings, et cetera. This is a hard thing to do, but the thing is, is what is wonderful about it is, is when you break down these subject matters into this, you end up knowing it so well and you find your practice on that topic even better. I have got a couple last questions. They may be quick, but my guess is that, that we'll talk about them for a little bit longer. So the first is, what do you think is the most impactful change in your clinical practice in the past 10 years? I'm focusing mostly on management of a disease condition. From my vantage point of it, it's crystal clear is my understanding of the three principles of orthopedics that I did not understand 
embarrassingly all the way through fellowship. And that is simply vascularity, biological potential, and biomechanics. If you walk into any case not understanding those and how they influence you and your clinical intuition as to what you do, you're going to make mistakes. The best example of it is is that we all develop that clinical intuition that, hey, if you had a femoral neck fracture right now, this is we try to fix it. Whereas, you know, that 75-year-old female has a femoral neck fracture, we're going to replace it. And that's because we've developed a clinical intuition that the biological potential of that 75-year-old is awful and that we're just going to abandon the need of biology, really, and jump to a replacement. And so what's happened with me in terms of the way that I manage everything from developmental conditions, just like hip dysplasia and like the timing of when I do a Pemberton and versus a PAO, et cetera, really comes down to that biological potential and where we are in terms of the biomechanics of that joint. The easiest ones to apply that to is something like a skippy. You know, that's the part that I, my approach to skippies have changed tremendously as I've learned all of these aspects of what's critical in orthopedics. And now, for me, that's what I look at just about every aspect of what I do is just try to quantify those things and use them in terms of how I might take on that disease. Okay. Along the same lines, what do you think is the biggest unanswered question that you are still sort of searching for in your clinical practice? That's the regenerative uh, aspect of this. We are at an understanding in bone biology that is so cool. And what we're about to, in the next 10 years, what's going to happen in our understanding of endochondral ossification is going to allow us to regrow cartilage, actually revascularize bone, et cetera. And that is that people used to think that endochondral ossification was a one-way street that involved multiple cells. And the discoveries that are coming out right now is, is that endochondral ossification, especially in a young growing skeleton, is the same cell, meaning that you have the stem cell turn into the chondrocyte, turn into the hypertrophic chondrocyte, turn into the osteoblast. Right. And the thing is, is as we're learning that, what we realize is, is there's such a thing as endochondral efficiency. And that is, is that the child heals a fracture more efficiently than adult, partially because of vascularity, things like that. But it's also because their cells are able to go, undergo that transformation all the way through. Whereas when you get older, it looks like what's happening is, is that the hypertrophic chondrocyte actually dies. And therefore, you need a whole other stem cell. So for an adult to make the same amount of bone, they need two cells for where the child only needs one. The thing that I have to tell you that I'm absolutely enamored with along this process, and I've uh, talked a ton with uh, Hank Cronenberg up at uh, Boston um, at Harvard and uh, Endocrine about this, is that it actually looks like this entire process is reversible. Huh. And that Perthes disease, for example, is a reversible process of endocondral ossification. We love to think, and I do think it can happen this way, is, is that you have an ossification center that dies and those osteoblasts die and you grow new cells. However, what it actually looks like can also happen is that those osteoblasts actually have the potential to turn back into a chondrocyte. And so what that theoretically means, if you think about that, is that the child is regrowing the hip from reversing the endochondral equation. So think about how cool that is, is, is that you have an osseific nucleus that either loses its vascularity or has too much biomechanical strain on it, and that cell says, hey, I'm an osteoblast, I can't deal with this hypoxic environment or this biomechanics. I'm going to turn myself back into a cell that can deal with it. 
and it turns itself back into a chondrocyte and turns into basically, if you think about it, a hypertrophic callus of a fracture, which can make it so that's why you get your coxabacin, for example, and then go forward again once it's resolved in the strain. Yeah, wow. I mean, imagine that. And imagine what that means for like scoliosis. Yep. And there's every aspect we take care of in the growing skeleton. If you think of endocondyl ossification as a continuous equation and that it's reversible, and we figure out genetically how to harness that, think about what you could do for the articular surface. Think about what you could do for you know, adult diseases of osteoporosis, et cetera. So the parts in terms of where I think we are going to have an explosion in terms of our biological ability to do surgery is going to be in that, is, is that that is going to be one of the biggest innovations that's going to happen in orthopedics. Um, and figuring those things out, I'm just I'm so excited for people like uh, Hank Cronenberg, who have developed the most unbelievable techniques for doing this, that they exist. I think that's great. I mean, along the lines of your talks, I, I can't thank you enough for helping me understand how stress and strain and different aspects of bone biology are, are so critical to my everyday thought of orthopedic problems. But I agree. I mean, I, I think that's a fascinating area. All right. A couple more questions. One is you mentioned some of you earlier, some of your readings of John Hunter and whatnot. And I know you like listening or reading a, a number of orthopedic and medical journals, but what books do you read and what book do you most often recommend to other people? The thing that's happened and one reason why you're doing what you're doing right now is, is that I think that it, you'd be remiss to not mention podcasts in that. I think that if you, with where we are now, with my short attention span on things, podcasts, I actually enjoy more than books. <laughs> but in terms of the books that I absolutely love, I love the ones that really help me understand myself. You know, I think it's a lot of fun to, we all know who we are, but we have a very hard time describing it. And I love coming across books that help explain who I am. Along those lines, some of my favorite ones that I tell all the med students to read, and I tell them not to take the advice that everybody should be off taking amphetamines all the time, is Stealing Fire by uh, Jamie Wheel. I think that is one of the most amazing books in terms of understanding the switch that happens in your head between going from extrinsic to intrinsic motivation, where all of us in orthopedics, for sure, have the ability to focus like crazy. You'll do a 10-hour case and think it was five minutes. And this book explains the neuropsychiatry behind why that happens. In terms of understanding how to set up your career, and like I said, in watching Perry love what he does, there's a book called Drive by Daniel Pink, which yeah, I think great. is incredible. I love that book. And then in terms of how we are in the residency training programs. I think it's a pretty extreme book. And if you listen to audiobooks, it actually the voice of it, you know, you think not as masculine as this guy is, is the, the Jocko Willink, you know, extreme ownership, the, right, right. Uh, the Navy Seals books. I've always loved those. And then my absolute pleasure, though, my favorite author at this point right now, especially because of his podcast, is uh, Malcolm Gladwell. Right. I just, every podcast that he puts out, both my wife and I, wait for Thursday morning. We get so excited. And he always has this way of telling a story that and part of it, you're thinking, where in the world is he going with this? And then all of a sudden, everything comes together and he makes an incredible point. Anything from the cop shootings to politics to things like why Elvis has a aphasia with a couple of his songs he sings. And they're just such interesting things. They really make you think that those are almost you know, my guilty pleasures, if you will. 
All right, last question. And you mentioned Susan a second ago, and we've obviously touched a little bit on your family. But, you know, outside of your family, what do you value and what do you value most on a daily basis, on a yearly basis? What do you value most in your life? In terms of people? Just in general. Oh, just in general. Outside um, of your family. It's outside of my family. What I would say is that feeling of a purpose, a feeling of wanting to do something in this world that is impactful in a good way. The idea that my brain is always moving and having it so that it's applying toward applying towards something that when I sit back at the end of the day, I just feel good about. That's really it. I mean, I'm you know, all of us who are in this field are plagued by that aspect that our brains are always moving. And, you know, what I try to do is set myself up with things to do every day that when I go to bed at night, this is that my dad and I like to joke, uh, you don't have many demons in your head. You know, right. it's just that you, you're able to sleep at night and you don't wake up at two in the morning panicked about something. Unfortunately, um, you and I have both talked about the fact that you have that meeting. What's your oh, you comment to Susan that you were she missed the 2 a.m. meeting that you were worried about? Uh, absolutely. <laughs> she didn't show up to the conference. I don't know why if she just missed the invite or what. But. <laughs> yeah, that's great. All right. Well, John, this is unbelievable. Hopefully somebody else listens to this because they benefit as much as I did. But this was a lot of fun. And as is our usual, we gave ourselves an hour to talk and we are now an hour and 43 minutes. So I appreciate it. Absolutely. And I love what you're doing with this, Nick. I think that this is part of the revolution we were talking about that's happening in education. And I think that this media that you're really working on is just going to be something that's here to stay. And I can't wait to hear so many other people's uh, thoughts and to learn from them. Well, we appreciate it. So thank you. 